Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Hello, folks. Welcome to Managing Leadership Anxiety. We've been on a one-week hiatus. We're moving to an every-other-week schedule, and we have a fantastic guest for you today. Hey, just before I get to our guest, Brian Mavis, uh, you could do me a huge favor. If you have already bought the book, Managing Leadership Anxiety, and read some of it, we would really appreciate if you take a moment to leave a review on Amazon. I'm a rookie author, and a lot of people don't know about the book, and reviews on Amazon are the lifeblood of any new author, so I'd greatly appreciate it if you just take time to do that. Today's guest is Brian Mavis. Brian and his wife, Julie, are the founders of America's Kids Belong, a phenomenal organization that helps pair foster kids and kids eligible for adoption with loving families. They started in Colorado, and it was so successful, they've gone nationwide. And join us as Brian talks about all manner of leadership anxiety, including how to handle an organization that explodes in growth. I began by asking Brian exactly what America's Kids Belong is all about. America's Kids Belong is a nonprofit that uh, empowers leaders, uh, specifically uh, political leaders like governors and church leaders and uh, creative leaders. Uh, in that, that space, it's been mostly videographers and some musicians and uh, then business leaders to use their influence to recruit more than enough foster families and adoptive families and then support for those families to uh, solve the foster care crisis in the United States. Yeah, and you started in Colorado, and we, you started in your own household. Yeah, I mean, we started off as being foster parents. We had This was not in our plan, life plan, of uh, doing a nonprofit. <laughs> so we started off um, in 2005. Um, my wife's uh, goal in life, uh, her calling, was to care for orphans. And she had done some of that in Mexico and in Honduras. And then when we moved to the United States... Uh, she was feeling lost and you know uh, from externally you would think we had you know a great life but she was feeling lost and purposeless and then she just felt this reaffirmation of caring for orphans she's like how am I supposed to do that as a suburban mom uh, with two little girls and uh, we stumbled upon the world of foster care and realized she had a light bulb moment um, they uh, she was learning why kids were in foster care, and a lot of it has to do with parents being uh, addicts, or there's you know abuse, severe neglect, those kinds of things. They're in prison. Parents are prostitutes. That that all that stuff. And she had as she was learning this, she was remembering that she was in an orphanage in Mexico, uh, and she asked the director, "How did all these kids?" Um, how did all their parents die? And he said, they're not dead. Uh, these kids are here because of severe neglect, abuse, the parents are addicts, they're in prison, they're prostitutes. And so when Julie had that memory, she was like, these are the same kids. We don't call them. They don't live in orphanages here. We call them group homes. We have all sorts of euphemisms in the United States. And so she was like, these are the same kids that I was helping in Mexico and Honduras. So I became foster parents. And uh, we had then uh, two incidences happen around 2007. 
we live in Larimer County, Colorado, just up by you know Fort Collins, um, in our north of Denver. And then I work at a church in Boulder County, a little bit south of there. And Julie, uh, we had a, a a baby that we got uh, out of foster care uh, fr- from the hospital, born premature, and then. Um, raised him for the first nine months of his life, really helping in his healing and um, healing not just physically, but from some of just that uh, embryonic trauma and all that kind of stuff. And he's just doing well, thriving. And we're working on reunification with his uh, biological mom and dad. And then Julie got a call from Child Welfare, said we have an emergency meeting, um, something that happened between uh, that the biological parents that was very bad and they said he'll never go back to them and so he needs adopting uh would you adopt him now we had already uh, done a couple of kids and our our goal had always been reunification with these kiddos and we love this boy and julie was like oh gosh like that that was in our plans but maybe we love him and then she she had this question that she asked she said what would happen to him if we said no, and the caseworker said at that time, said, oh, he'll be fine. Hmm. There's a line of people waiting for babies. Then she said something that started to change her life, Julie's life. She said, I just wish there was a line for all the other kids. Hmm. And Julie's like, what other kids? And she goes, there's over 800 kids in Colorado who need a forever family, but nobody wants them. I was like, why? She goes, they're not little babies. And so uh, then something happened to me at a similar time in Boulder County at a church. And child welfare calls and says, uh, somebody from child welfare says, can I meet with you? I said, sure. So a few days later, this lady, Cindy, came and said, thanks for meeting with me. I've been trying to meet with a pastor for years. You're the first one to say yes. I, so I apologize that that would have been her experience. Um, uh, so we came back to the office and um, talked a little bit. She had shared that you know she had been a nun for 20 years in the Cabrini Green housing projects, and she met a priest, so they became Episcopalian. Uh, that's how it works. <laughs> Got married, yes. So that was fun. Uh, but she said, Brian really came here to just tell you one thing. Uh, she said, in the 27-year history of child welfare in Boulder County, there has never been one single day where kids were not waiting for kids. Kids were not waiting for families to take care of them, and not one day. And she said, "I have a challenge for you and your church. Help me change your weights. Help me recruit so many families uh, that they're the ones on the waiting list, not the kids." So, sitting there thinking, "Okay, I've got this non challenge me to help." Orphans, and I know if I say no, I'm going to go to hell. So, <laughs> out of self-preservation, you don't want to be chastised by a nun. No, I was afraid. Yeah. So, no, actually, I really did feel like yeah. uh, you know. There's sometimes you you look back in retrospect, and you're you're saying, "Oh man, that was really a God moment," and I didn't know it. I knew it right in the then. moment. I yeah. knew it in the moment. It was yeah. like, "Uh oh, <laughs> this is God speaking through her." Yeah. And so I we accepted the challenge. And so we did something similar in Larimer County and in Boulder County. And essentially it was this conviction of like, it wasn't what the lady said in Larimer County. It wasn't that people didn't want these kids. It's that they didn't know that these kids existed. And so we had this conviction that the best spokespeople for these kids were the kids themselves. 
So we gave them an avenue to share their face, their voice, their story, uh, convinced that families were in the church and it wasn't that the church didn't care, they were just unaware. And so we made an impact there. One thing led to another, started leaning into this issue statewide. Um, that then exhausted our our own financial resources. So we had to start a nonprofit called Adopt in Colorado Kids. And then about four years ago, um, we were challenged to go beyond Colorado, resisted it, gave into it, and uh, changed the name to America's Kids Belong to have the need be more holistic, not just um, kids who needed adopting, but foster parents for unification, family supporting those. And then we teamed up with a couple in Virginia who had done an impact in uh, Virginia through the government and doing a campaign through the governor, um, Ryan and Janet Kelly. And she was the secretary of state, youngest in the country at that time. And so they had a grass tops model. We had a grassroots model Hmm. and uh, we needed each other. And so we married those models. So we have two married couples who have formed this national nonprofit that has its own dynamics, uh, having married couples working together. (laughs) Holy cow. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 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 Yeah, that's enough said. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think we can fill in the gaps. It's got to be, yeah. It's, <laughs> There's some just, good stuff. Just it's, adds it's, a layer. Yeah, another layer. <laughs> yeah. How many states are you guys in now? Well, we have our full model and have uh, done run our full model, which is that uh, t- uh, full campaign along with the governor in three states, and we have part of what we do in uh, four four other states. Yeah. Okay. Right yeah. So I, I want to take this in two directions. First of all, obviously, I've heard you talk about this a lot. I've Mm-hmm. I've seen this whole journey, but I, it was important to me that our listeners hear about this particular organization. Um, the two things that come to mind, let's take one at a time, is, is you made a comment that, that pe- people in the church, it's not that they didn't care, it's that they weren't aware. Yeah. I think one of the challenges for the everyday follower of Jesus nowadays is that there is a level of indifference for sure, but there's also just a level of people feeling extremely overwhelmed by all the chronic need. Mm-hmm. And, People just hear the journey you just shared. No one in their right mind can say, well, that doesn't matter. Like, surely everywhere you go, people say, what Brian and Julie are doing, what America's Kids Belong is doing, really, really matters. How do you guys compete in the space where so many things really, really matter? Oh, yeah. Right? Like, like in the last uh, 10 days, I've been to four fundraisers. Yeah. It's occupational hazard as a pastor. Yeah, yeah. And these are four friends of mine that are all running really great nonprofits. And I sit through every fundraiser thinking, boy, does this really matter? But it's overwhelming. How, how do you get your message? So uh, s- several, several ways. Um, one is, is we believe that uh, this cause is extremely strategic and pragmatic it's upstream to a lot of other issues okay so so for example uh, kids who are in foster care and then who age out not being connected to a family uh, are like uh, four times more likely to commit suicide than their peers Uh, 18 year old girls are three times more likely to have a a baby uh, that are in foster care compared to their peers they're the most vulnerable group uh, in the country uh, to being victimized uh, as human in human trafficking, 
Uh, they're more likely than any other group to suffer from um, uh, a traumatic stress disorder, and it's not just post-traumatic stress disorder. They have a complex or developmental stress disorder. There was never a pre-stress. Right. Almost every kid in this situation is coming out of... Trauma is what caused this situation. Trauma is causing all these other things. And and what caused the trauma... So there's one other thing is, is these very broken relationships of abuse and neglect. Abuse communicates, I hate you. Neglect communicates, I wish you didn't exist. And so that trauma causes all sorts of other issues. So I've identified 10 other social wounds that this trauma and broken relationships and aging out of foster care without being connected cause. So uh, focusing on this issue, when you focus and intervene with a family to help heal, uh, you're helping solve homelessness. You're helping solve uh, addiction. You're helping solve uh, sex trafficking. It's, it's, upstream on a lot of other issues those issues are cobwebs foster care is the spider and so you go in and deal with that so one it's strategic uh two it's solvable that's another deal of like some of these issues just are just too big yeah yeah but there's four uh, about right now there's about 430,000 kids in foster care there aren't near enough families but there's about you know, 350, 400,000 churches. Uh, there's tens of millions of Christians. Uh, we surround them. We way outnumber them. And there's churches in urban areas, in suburban areas, rural areas. There's uh, um, black churches, white churches, Hispanic churches. We cover the gamut. The church is built for this. And so this issue is solvable by, when it comes just in your numbers. And then the third reason is this is the gospel. James 1.27 talks about this being a pure expression of, it uses the word religion, but it'd be a pure expression of worship, a pure expression of our faith, uh, that this is something that if you want to live out our faith in a way that God will, you know, is happy with, cannot criticize, it's stepping in in uh, caring for the vulnerable in a way that is transformational, not just transactional. Yeah. So that's how we try to cut through. And it's kids. They're victims. And so um, we've um, uh, the, uh, uh, when people hear those reasons, they, they resonate. They, they're they compelled. Hits, yeah, they're compelled either um, through you know, their heart or their belief system or for some people who are real heady, it's like, this just makes sense. It's solvable. It's strategic. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. So then <laughs> I'm also listening to you because you've always struck me as you're very gifted at communicating with clarity and passion. So that's also um, a curse because your success in, in has exploded. Yeah. You, you, you and Julie started in your household. You then moved Colorado statewide and you guys were instrumental in massively reducing the number of foster kids in waiting for families in Colorado. So now you're like drowning in success. And by success, I don't mean money and fame and spare time. I mean, people wanting our help. Your opportunity, um, has what? tenfold or more yeah i mean we're getting calls all the time from all over the country texas and california i mean lots of states asking for help and either it's it's 
coming from child welfare, it's a, a church is asking, another ministry is asking, maybe it's um, you know a business leader who heard about this issue. I mean, uh, literally just yesterday, Denver County, um, we had a meeting with them. They contacted us, and uh, I don't have the exact numbers, but there's that Denver County has 1,200 and some kids in foster care, and I think the number was 121 foster families. So there's over a thousand person gap there. I mean, there's a big need. Yeah. And so that kind of statistic is true in virtually every county in the United States. There's 3,100 and like four counties in the United States. Everyone has a gap. So the need, need is huge. And, um, because, because it's so big, um, yeah, people are feeling, people who are responsible for this, caring for the, you know, solving this are feeling like, yeah, we need help. Yeah. So, Brian, what, what do you do to manage the weight on your shoulders? Like, when, when you have a ministry like you have that is literally life and death, that's urgent, you wake up every morning, the statistics are against you, that, that weighs a guy down. What, what do you do personally to help get some relief from just the ongoing pressure of this particular vocation? <laughs> Mostly unhealthy habits to get through. No, <laughs> I mean, yeah. some of that, I mean, I actually have... Um, Heroin's had, been very it, kind it, to me. It's know. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I um, fall in and out of some good habits, and it's, I think, when... Um, so I have a regular routine of walking and praying and I live near a kind of a river and wooded area and that is real therapeutic to me. There's something about water and woods that uh, feels, I don't know. Restorative. Yeah, it's restorative. So that is a big deal. Um, Thinking again that this is... um, God cares about this more than I do, and uh, He's He's doing miracles. And I, I so when if people want to know why I pray, I pray because I need Him. I'm desperate, and so, um, so just believing that God is in this and He's making things happen is reassuring. But I I do struggle. I do struggle with anxiety. I mean, I've had panic attacks. Mm. Um, I have right now, uh, some clogged arteries and I've had two angiograms, one angioplasty. Uh, I'm 53 and in relatively good shape. You're a burpee king, if I recall. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I used to be a CrossFitter and yeah, yeah I can do, yeah, do burpees and, and I'm yeah, strong and decent shape, but I, I, I carry, um, anxiety and stress in my body. So I was, I was self-deceiving. Um, if you had asked me just even a few years ago, are you stressed? I would say I am not. Mm-hmm. And it's because um, I have an attitude that is very like half, you know, glass half full kind mm-hmm. of thing. It's like I just have a good attitude. And so I thought stress um, resides in your head. Uh, well, stress doesn't reside in my head. It resides in my body, mm-hmm. in my heart specifically. Yeah. And all of a sudden it was becoming clear to me of like, oh, that's where I hold stress and I, my, I'm paying for it. And so um, 
I'm, I am doing some things now because of the, how I process stress. It's, um, I've changed my diet. I eat essentially a Mediterranean diet, um, off of virtually all grains except for rice. Um, I have lots of omega threes, lots of supplements. Uh, I, uh, have, I've not done well lately because of traveling, and that's I'm just using that as an excuse. But it is I, harder though when you travel. Is, as a kid. I've, I've exercised regularly. I bought i I invest in my health. I've it's I, I I was like I can't afford this, but I also can't afford to die right now. So uh, Di- dying would be a bummer on a number of levels. So the least so, of which for your organization. So shout out to Peloton. I did a bike. I uh, got a bike. I, I, it's great. Um, doing that. Um, uh, exercise regularly um, and then uh, right now uh, better living through chemistry uh, as the pharmacies uh, you know compa- companies have I you know I'm on s- some meds uh, to help with cholesterol and blood pressure so um, this again this is taking a tangent I didn't expect to take but I was having chest pain. I did so well on my stress test that the doctor said, you have less than a 1% chance of having cardiovascular blockage. Um, it just, just proves how studly I am. You know, cause <laughs> yeah, I, they that's said, what I was thinking. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. I kept having problems. I became such an advocate for myself. I said, what has to happen to rule out that 1% chance? And they said, we have to go in and you know, do an angiogram and go into your your arteries and veins and put in the dye and take pictures. And sure enough, I had one one artery that was over 90% blocked mm. and some uh, with some less blockage. So if any of your listeners out there are feeling uh, not well, be your own best advocate yeah. and pursue pursue health. Yeah, until you know, until yeah. you know what you can know, and and take it seriously. A, uh, uh, lately, I've been saying um, health is my hobby. I just saw my cardiologist um, two days ago. He he said to me, "Exercise is your job." I mean, he he ramped it up. I mean, he took my line and trumped yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, and said this is this is part of your your life, your work. I mean. Your work life is exercising, so um, that's that's a big part of solving anxiety. That's good. So let's talk about starting an organization, outrageous success. Chris Tomlin has come alongside you guys and been a great advocate. Mm-hmm. So you're getting massive exposure. What's it like to, to have to lead an organization? Like you've got a tiger by the tail, right? Yes. You, you, you were trying to get ahead of something, but now you're always trying to catch up. Yeah. Is that right? Yes. It, yes. What's that like? How do you handle that? Um, it's, 
trying to find out um, what the best yeses are, what to say no to. And so one of our mantras, so we have several mantras in our company that reinforce our values. So one of them is look for tailwind. And so we look for, uh, what that means is uh, a set of preconditions that give us a better chance of succeeding. And it also, so on, if, if um, you're not a spiritual or Christian person, not one of faith, it's just simply like, um, you know, what's the governor think of this? How collaborative is child welfare? You know, what, we're, what's the status of uh, the business and church community? Uh, can we raise financial support here? All those kinds of things. And then if you are a spiritual person, it's like, do, you, do we think God is in yeah. this at this place? Yeah. And scripture shows there are cities where God would say, don't go there. Uh, and even the instructions of Jesus what, were, to his disciples were, if you go into the city and this town just uh, rejects you, wipe the dust off your feet and move on. And so... Mother Teresa, there's a documentary on her that was uh, novelized in a movie called The Letters. She is um, just now, she's leaving her work as a principal, at a, as, a, as a teacher at a school. And uh, she's walking through the slums of Calcutta. And as a Christian in a Hindu slum, and there's a group of kind of militant men there who are angry and don't want her there and they come to they approach her as a mob and this little woman uh just squares up and she they're like saying get out of here and she says to them you may not want me but you need me i'm not leaving and I mean, there's something so brave and heroic about her and my wife has probably about 15 books about mother Teresa. That's her you know, personal hero. I was like, I'll never follow that advice. If you don't want me, I'm moving on. <laughs> I'll take Jesus' advice. Wipe the uh, yeah. you know, d- dust off your feet and move on. So it's looking for that tailwind. Um, when you have too many opportunities, you've got to um, know what to, which ones to say no to which ones have the best chance of succeeding because the work is going to be hard enough even with tailwind i have a uh one of my board members he just he puts it this way and and actually got that phrase from him but um another way he put it is like well if you're swimming in a river uh you know uh at you're that's moving at two miles an hour and you're a two mile an hour swimmer it makes a big difference which direction you're swimming yeah one way you're going to drown the other way, you're going to look like an amazingly fast swimmer. Yeah. And so go with that current. So that makes sense on an organizational level, finding new opportunity, taking some ground. Yeah. But what's also true is your organization grows, not just your opportunity, but your infrastructure, <laughs> your team, your resources. That is its own form of pressure. So I'll, I'll testify, when, when our church was explosively growing, it was, it was some of the hardest season of my leadership life. I loved it. It was exhilarating. But I just was paying so much personal cost. And uh, a friend of mine, Dennis Bratton, who was a retired pastor of a very large church, 
he pulled me aside. It was terrible. And he said, hey, Steve, um, once you get 10 staff, you're always going to have problems. Hmm. And I'm like, Dennis, that's like Thanks. extremely cynical. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but Dennis is not a cynical person. Uh-huh. He's an optimist. And he was just defining reality. And he said, I'm not saying people are a problem. I'm just saying at any given time, one in any 10 people are having a big problem in their life, like a personal problem. Or, And if you're the leader of the organization, you're involved. So I now have 30-something staff. And I find a lot of my time is just helping my own team right behind the scenes and less of the upfront stuff. What about the pressures of growing an organization? And it's not just you and Julie anymore. Yeah, that's, that is true. Um, And as you were saying it too, I was just reflecting back on scripture and the first crisis the church uh, faces is a growth crisis. Right. Greek widows. They're growing so fast. That's right. That a a segment of that uh, community uh, the Greek widows aren't being taken care of. And so the solution is um, to find uh, some great people uh, full of uh, uh, wisdom in the Holy Spirit to figure it out. So um, the, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in you got to get the right people on the bus. Uh, character is, uh, not only is character important, it Almost everybody underestimates how important it is and that you find healthy people. I mean, that's what what this, your whole um, book and podcast are about, is about health. And so trying to select healthy people is super important. Um, the, our, yeah, our staff is now over 20. The other problem that just makes it harder is we're um, distributed from... We have, we have some staff from California to Virginia. We have staff in every time zone. Yeah. And the, when hard stuff happens, it gets a lot harder when we're separated. And it, if you have, like, if you deliver some sort of content speaking into some, a hard situation, and if you get, said the exact same words and you give it over email or over the phone or over a video conference or in person, you'll have four different responses, four different results and reactions. Emails, the worst. It's a cold medium. People uh, will uh, tend to read it and fill in uh, a negative tone. In the absence of information, people fill in the gaps in the most pathological way possible. Totally do. Yeah. I do it too. Yeah. Uh, I, I, like, I get a tough email. Um, I do not have, I'm not receiving it with a, a warm, loving voice, re, you know, uh, giving it to yeah. me um, phones a little bit better videos a little bit better uh, so when we're having a tough conversation uh, or, or we're facing a tough thing uh, Julie and I will uh, spend $500 fly to that person and have that conversation in person and it's the best $500 we spent one of the things I'm really liking about this conversation, it's, it's like a, a recurring theme, is you are intentionally inefficient for the greater good. You, you exercise for the greater good instead of get more done. You get on a plane, which is a phenomenal use of money and time. It is. For the greater good. I like that. Yeah. It's, so there's, there's two ways to work. Um, and 
in, like in the Greek, in the Bible, there's two words for time. There's uh, chronos uh, and um, kairos. Chronos is just what we typically think of time, minute by minute, hour by hour. It's, it's chronological. Uh, kairos is the idea of a, a, a moment, an opportunity. And so uh, think of chronos as a plow horse. He gets up every day, puts in his hours, Hopefully he's being productive, you know, it, it, it's tilling and seeds are getting sown. Kairos is a hawk who waits and, and just is kind of soaring. And then he sees a moment and strikes mm. and dives in, all in. And um, I've found that most people work like plow horses, which is needed. And that's probably um, most of my time, too. But I've really tried to take on the wisdom of the hawk and say, here is a, an incredibly important moment. I mean, if I don't take these next two days and the $500 to fly in, uh, this um, that can be maybe solved in the next two days or helped a lot uh, could derail the next two years. And so you've got to be aware of those critically important moments and take everything you have and go in. You've got to be present. You've got to show up. You've, the value of being face-to-face in those moments um, is invaluable. Yeah, technology still has not eliminated the power of that. No. You, no. Or yeah. maybe it's even heightened the power of that because it's less common now. I suppose so. I yeah. think you're right because people have to, uh, depended on, uh, overly depended on that. It's like when you get a handwritten note. Like, when's the last time in your mailbox you actually got something personal? I can't remember when, though um, I wrote one recently, and this person called me and just said, just thank you so much. Mm-hmm. So um, the power of a handwritten note um, is, again, even with the same content, if you had written that note and put it in an email, its impact would be uh, deeply fractional. Yeah, that's true. There's something about the power of just seeing that it was written out, couldn't have been copied and paste. They took, we took the time to get an envelope, a stamp, and walk. People want to know that you care about them. Yeah. People need people. Yeah. All right. Practicing the Presence of People is a book that I own. I haven't read it. I bought it just for the title. It is a good title. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, this whole podcast... The thesis is what gets in the way of being fully present to people and God. And if you can figure out what gets in the way, you can be more present to people and God. Yeah. yeah. And I get in the way. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I think also, I, I do think anxiety uh, is competing with God for the space in which God resides. Like, yes. Like God can, God can invade our anxiety. It's not that he's limited by it. But our ability to notice God's presence, I think, is, is greatly reduced when we're anxious. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's it's, all on us. yeah. Even last night, I was going for a walk, and instead of praying, I was talking to myself. And boy, man, I whipped myself up yeah. into some not a good place. Yeah. So I actually interrupted my walk because <laughs> I said, this, this walk isn't working this yeah, time. That's <laughs> good. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Anxiety is a... Is a uh, uh, a deep temptation another, another God to serve 
How do you know when you're stuck? And then how do you go from stuck to unstuck? Um, These are small questions. Yeah, thanks. It's, they're so easy. Give yeah. me a harder one. Yeah. Uh, I, I, uh, I know how uh, my pattern, my bad pattern is uh, I avoid conflict. And so uh, a couple years ago, and I was able to uh, express it to myself in a way that felt really accurate. Um, I am a false peacekeeper, not a true peacemaker. And so I try to keep a false peace by not um, dealing with stuff. And everybody's like, just everyone put on a happy face. Yeah. Um, let's deal with this by not dealing with it. Like, let's move on. Everyone just move on. And um, I tend to be able to move on. I, I, I forgive. I think I forgive well. I forgive so well, I can't even remember what people were, were, you know, were hung up about. Um, but a lot of people are like, I was really hurt or wounded or something like that. So I know when we get stuck, sometimes when it's my fault, it's because I have not faced an issue in a authentic way. I've not, I've kept a false peace and I've not been a true peacemaker and making peace and keeping peace are two different things and making peace requires entering into the issue and discussing it and working through it. You've, you've got to face it. That's good. That's gold. I think one source of anxiety for a leader is when we're not getting what we think we need in the moment, in any given moment. And of course, there's legitimate anxiety. If your kid's on the street and there's traffic coming and you're anxious, that's normal. Mm -hmm. But leadership anxiety, I think, is often generated when we believe we need something that we don't actually need. So I, I have a belief that I always need to be understood. And if someone misunderstands me, I get anxious. And my next move is to explain more, which never works. Mm. But where I've found peace is just dying to the need to be understood. It's not actually true that I need to be understood all the time. I can be misunderstood and I'm fine. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. What's something that you could identify that you believe you need in any given moment that you don't actually need? Boy, that is a tough question. I feel like I need to be believed. Like you need to be understood. I need to be believed, like believed in. Um, you know, I... I just, I have, I'm afraid there's some people who think I don't have what it takes. Okay. Uh, man, that line, uh, for so many people, um, I don't know if it's true for everyone or equally true for both genders. For me and for most my buddies I know, do I have what it takes? Haunts us. And when I have other people in my life who I think, I think they don't think I have what it takes, um, it either motivates me badly, like I'll show them, or it depresses me, makes me sad, um, to be believed in. And then part of me is like, well, it doesn't matter if they believe me or not, um, do I believe in me? Does God believe in me? You know, I, I feel like I'm being obedient. That's more important. I'm being obedient to what God's called me to. Yeah. 
But I think I've always been un- underestimated. Um, and I've done it to myself too. Yeah, you're not talking just a pure imposter syndrome. There's part of that in what you're saying. But you're talking about a way that you see the way people see you. Yeah, I, um, I, I'm self-deprecating. I've never, been, I've never been the lead guy. I've always been the second banana. Until now. Until now. And so people are like, well, I mean, you're kind of a late bloomer. I mean, people have said that to you. Oh, I've said it to myself, yeah. and I think, and then I, and maybe I'm telling, I'm, I'm projecting. I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, you know, a lot of the guests on my show, I don't know them, and I've known you a long time, and you were one of the very first people I ever met in Colorado, yeah. actually. Yeah. Um, I think my friends and I, I think you're, a, have always been a genius, brilliant leader. It's, it's, it's intriguing to hear that. I've struggled with self confidence. Yeah. And so um, I've was well, interesting before taking this role on this position. Um, I remember saying to some of our mutual friends um, who had, who had said to me, you, "You know, you are you are underutilized. Like you're the most underutilized person we've ever met." Yeah. And I've said back, "I want the burden of leadership." Today I think, why do I? Why did I phrase it? Why did I say I want the privileges of leadership or the joy of leadership? I, I got the burden, boy. Be careful what you ask for. I've often, I've often thought when people say, you know, is this what you want to do, being a lead pastor? I'm like, what I want to do is be the guy that was formerly the lead pastor. Like I want oh, to have the best, right? Yeah, I want to have done, done it, it. <laughs> more yeah. than I want to keep doing it. It's like it. Yeah, the best position in football is the backup quarterback. Oh. <laughs> they get paid well. That's so else. true. I mean, <laughs> so true. The lead, the lead one stuff. Uh, uh-huh. That's a, I think that's a, I think that's a really helpful answer. I think it's a gift, actually, that answer you gave. All right, another source of anxiety is um, making mistakes, and because. You're a leader and a parent, mm-hmm. same to me. Mm-hmm. All of your mistakes are public. They're always, I think what makes leadership difficult is we make all of our mistakes in front of the people we lead. So in my case, first time I'd ever been a lead pastor, I'm young, I'm learning how to preach in front of the people I'm preaching to, I'm learning how to lead in front of the people I'm leading, <laughs> many of whom are older and more experienced leaders than me. Yeah. And so anytime I'd make a mistake, the public shame, not that people would shame me, but the temptation is then to hide and blame and not put myself out there again. And I'm a people pleaser. One of the things I believe I need is people to like me. Mm-hmm. And so a mistake also puts pressure on that for me. But I think one of the ways to de-escalate anxiety is to, is to learn how to recover from a mistake. So tell us about a mistake you've made probably a recent one would be preferable if you're up for it. Okay. Because I don't like preachers that talk about, you know, back when I used to make mistakes. Um, Tell us about a mistake you've made and how you recovered from it. Oh, man, I hate making mistakes. Um, I tend to be gracious towards myself, except when I, like, like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm not perfect. I mean, I get it. But when I really hurt someone, like, and, um, uh, gosh, and and I'll I'll be vague about these, and then I'll give you a specific. No, one the vague's fine as long as we know what goes on inside you. That's all we need. I um, I, I've I've violated the um, what I've talked about of like not going, not either getting, at least picking up the phone, 
or flying in and uh, working through an expectation and not meeting someone's expectation and knowing like, I'm not going to be able to meet this expectation. I know you expected this. I can't meet it. And, um, it, and then to say, but to then like send it through an email. So to take the time to be with someone and say, um, let's, I care about our relationship a lot and I'm not gonna be able to meet this ex- expectation. So can, can, can we work through this? I mean, I want you to know that I care about you and I'm going to do what I can to, you know, keep keep our relationship good yeah. through this. Yeah, you're describing what I would call repair work. You're just doing repair work before you move on. You do, yeah, and it's and it's about you know the two of, the mm-hmm. two of you or you know, the in two organizations. Like, hey, let's you know I care about you, and this is uh, this is just the difficulty of our work that's happening. It has nothing again because. What, what's happened is people have just they felt in they filled in the blanks with some some false scenarios, right. and I didn't help them fill in the blanks with the truth, right? Which is it's especially fascinating when it's long term relationships. It's like we have all this trust and we spend it in a single email. And you, uh, and you, yeah, and it's shocking sometimes. Of like, how did how did it go bad? So like, you, how do you, you not know, know me? me? You know my heart. Oh, but then I do the same to others too. Yeah, it's, it's not. It's not that you and I are the ones no, that are mature, and other people. No, like I said, I was just like, even, even last night. I'm I'm telling myself on this walk the worst versions of stories that can happen about people I right. know and love. Right. All right. The next question is about group anxiety. This this podcast we spend a lot of time uh, internally, but we try to spend a lot of time helping leaders notice anxiety in a group, and anxiety is contagious in a group the way you catch a cold. Mm. So where have you seen anxiety be contagious in a group? Well, um, an, another mantra we have, besides look for tailwind, is leaders set the mood. Uh, I believe in that so big time. I mean, a lot of times, like, you know, all the quotes about what leadership is, leadership is influence, right. leadership is knowing what, to, you know, the right thing to do. Right. Uh, uh, mine is leaders set the mood, and uh, conversely, unfortunately, uh, it's also true that the person with the strongest emotions is leading. And sometimes those strongest emotions are anger. Um, you know, it's something that looks more like true anxiety, and <clears throat> that spreads. Anger can spread. Uh, mistrust can spread. And so, and it's, uh, it's a person, and those are strong emotions. Those negative emotions tend to be stronger than joy. Yes. And uh, so I try to lead through joy as being like uh, my, I, I'm out there. I tend to be pretty, I can be gregarious. I, again, typically happy and expressive of that. Uh, but uh, anger can trump joy like that. Yeah. And so, and it can spread. So, um, it's important to, uh, um, pay attention to the people who have the strongest emotions and, and dig in. Yeah. You, you intuitively know what I actually teach on this, which is, um, 
oftentimes the most anxious person in the room has the most power. Unless the leader is aware and knows how to overcome it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and again, I believe, yeah, the negative emotions tend to be stronger than the positive ones. Yeah. Good. All right. I think the next two questions are much more fun. (laughs) Um, Oh, they have to be. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I think oftentimes a leader is the last to know when they're not well. You know, sometimes I know in my life, I often need others to tell me, uh, you're not well, I'm just not as in touch. Um, and sometimes anxiety is simply a, a, a mathematical case of input and output. Too much output, not enough input. Too much trying to do everything for the cause, not enough life-giving. So in the vein of that, um, when in your life do you feel most fully loved? Mm. Uh, I feel, well, I guess most fully loved by those who I love the most. So my wife and daughters, um, just I, I love being with them. And uh, so fortunately, um, my daughters still live near us. And my wife and I work together. So that's, I'm a you know, big beneficiary of our, our time together. So just being with them. And then actually then getting to... Um, we we still spend a lot a big proportion of our income uh n- not just doing my wife and I a vacation we still take our adult daughters with us and then one of my daughters is married and uh so my son-in-law who I love and the other daughter is with a serious boyfriend we take him too so we take all the kids on a vacation every year and it's just special that's good you got to create the, you've got you've got to spend those extra money on those extra special moments. You're the second person that's told me that. I'm in my late 40s. I had one of my staff members who's really wise. He's in his early 30s. He's saving now for when his kids are grown and gone to go on vacation with them and their families. Absolutely. I'm like, I wish I was that smart. It, it's better than when they're little. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. So, I mean, if you're going to skip doing family vacations, do it while they're young. <laughs> oh, that's so good. <laughs> just... Okay, last question. Uh, you've already shared about the woods and the, and the water behind your house. Give us another geographical location where you feel most fully human and alive. A- a- anywhere in the world. A place? A yep, place. A place. And what are you doing? Um, boy, yeah, woods and water are big. Uh, in addition to that, I would say, oh boy, that's a tough one. Um, I, my wife and I have, um, in the past few years, have made it a practice to travel to um, monasteries and wineries. And they, uh, monasteries are typically old, and wineries are typically beautiful. My wife uh, loves the wine. I love the architecture. Um, and it's, um, they're, they're beautiful places. And they're, they tend to be places that um, slow, everything slows down. And so you, you, you can become just more present of like 
the eternal and also with wineries, the beauty of some of the temporal and, yeah. and taking creation and then being a cultivator of creation. Um, there's actually, last year we went to a, uh, a monastery that's also a winery uh, near just north of Chico, California, and they uh, happened to go on the day that was called the Blessing of the Grapes, mm. and they did a communion service. Yeah, yeah. It was the best communion experience I've ever had, yeah. and I didn't actually take communion. I watched the monks take it in this vineyard. It, it, it brought tears to my eyes. Yeah, that's good. So those are good places. Good. I'll throw in a quick bonus question. The rumor is, around the rumor mill around you guys, is that you have become, shockingly, one of Chris Tomlin's best tambourine players. Uh, well, it's, it's because um, uh, I, I, I had t- dance moves to the it. The dancing is yes. what got it going. <laughs> yeah. You're one of his worship dancers now. <laughs> I am. Uh-huh. That's incredible. Yeah. Uh-huh. Good. Uh, the go-go shorts are really top it off. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> good deal. Man, thanks for your time. This is Rich. Thanks for joining us today. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram from the handle Steve Cusswords. You can also go to stevecusswords.com for more resources. This episode has been a production of Brendan Reed and Steve Cuss.